Well, good morning. It is so freeing to be able to say that. Good morning. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be with you again as we, uh, this morning, we'll be focusing on the God who has revealed himself to us in the person and work of Christ, which, of course, is the focus of this Advent season. Uh, this morning, we'll be attempting to explore the question of that, it's the question asked of that famous Christmas carol, What Child Is This? And so at this time, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Micah chapter 4. Uh, the Old Testament lesson that we ex just read was Mic Micah chapter 5, but what I'd like to do first of all is to look at some of the background context of, uh, that leads up to Micah chapter 5, and so we'll do that uh, this morning. First of all, starting with verse 1 of Micah chapter 4. <clears throat> in the beginning of Micah 4, we read that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now it just so happens that the section that we find here in Micah chapter 4 is nearly identical, almost word for word, to the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 2. And scholars are actually not quite sure whether you know, Isaiah is quoting and inter interacting with Micah, or that Micah is quoting and expanding on the words from the prophecy of Isaiah. Both of these prophets actually lived around 700 BC, and they served in their roles during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, just a few years ago, by the way, there was a, a small little um, seal discovered in Jerusalem that named Hezekiah the king. So there's actual archaeological confirmation. And then just a few years later, they found uh, an inscription that said uh, Isaiah, Navi, or the prophet. So there's a seal corresponding that shows that there really was a king Hezekiah confirmed outside of scripture, and there really was a prophet named Isaiah. Well, what seems to be clear here is that whoever first wrote down these words that are recorded here in Micah 4, whoever first wrote them down, what we have here is a prophecy of the latter times that all the nations will begin to flow to Mount Zion. And as with most Old Testament prophecies, figurative language is, of course, being employed. The mountain of the house of the Lord will not literally be lifted up above all the hills of the world, including Mount Everest. But what both Micah and Isaiah are saying to us is that it, it's similar to the, the vision that Daniel had in chapter 2 of his prophecy, which described, um, you know, it's, he, this is the scene in which he's interpreting that great statue that, from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was this vision of a rock cut by no human hands that ended up destroying this great statue, which 
represented the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. There would be a new kingdom that would be the, there would be a new king of kings. The great emperor beyond the sea would not be these pagan kingdoms. Well, that this prophecy talked about this rock cut from no human hands that would, that would hit the statue and then this rock would grow to become a mountain that indeed filled the entire earth. A mountain that would fill the entire earth. In his explanation of that vision, Daniel says, quote, in the days of those kings, namely the kings of that latter kingdom of iron, which most commentators take to be the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That really happened. Jesus came announcing the kingdom in the days of Caesar Augustus and Tiberius, and that kingdom is still reigning. This is the king we are here to worship this morning. This kingdom shall never be destroyed. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Guess what? The kingdom of Babylon is gone. Where's the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Greece. Rome. Gibbon wrote a book on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, but the, the kingdom of Christ still stands. And that's what's being described here in Micah chapter 4 as well. In the latter days, namely in the latter period of Israel's theocratic kingdom, People from around the world will begin to stream to the house of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When we read here, out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word translated there, law, is actually the word Torah, which is the word which the Jews used to refer to the entire five books of Moses. You know, that that word is inclusive of everything including commands as well as promises because it's the entire instruction that's probably a good way to to refer to this word and it's often used in the old testament that word is i mean this is important because as paul makes clear in his epistles the writings of moses actually contains both law and promises so when we read here that out of Zion shall go forth a law, this is not to say that the kingdom of Christ grows and expands wherever the law of Moses was put into effect. As we'll see, this is not a text that ends up supporting some version of theonomy. No, according to Micah and Isaiah, what happens in this case is that sometime in the future, from their perspective, people from all the idolatrous nations around the world will begin to inquire about the God of Israel. They will hear and receive the word of the Lord. Now take a look at verse 3 of Micah 4. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for nations far away. What's incredible is that all this actually took place. The nations of the world did end up streaming to Zion in order to hear from the God of Jacob. In the days of Micah and Isaiah, the religions of the the religion of the Hebrews, was so obscure that it probably wouldn't have made a list of the top ten faiths in all the world. The most popular beliefs, just list them. Beliefs and worldviews. But yet, after the time of Christ, men from every part of the globe began to put their trust in the God of Jacob as they saw so many 
of the promises from the Old Testament scriptures filled, fulfilled in Christ. Notice, too, what this prophecy goes on to say in verse 4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Some have interpreted this as some kind of a golden age that perhaps points to, you know, the kind of millennial reign of, uh, of Christ or millennial reign of peace. But I don't believe that that's actually what this prophecy is saying. As we compare this passage again, looking to a parallel passage with Daniel chapter 2, it seems clear that we presently live in this period in which the kingdom is expanding. That rock cut from no human hands will grow and expand and become a huge mountain that fills the entire earth. Well, we're, we're, it's not quite yet done. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the expansion of his own kingdom and church. Well, that's the, that's the phase that we're in right now. We're, that this kingdom continues to expand. And so this is what the kingdom of God is currently in the process of doing. And so the peace that we find here in this passage is not referring to this instantaneous peace that is now applicable everywhere around the world. But if you look again at our passage from verse 3 of Micah chapter 4, it specifically applies this promise to many peoples. Many peoples. In other words, it applies to those who have indeed submitted themselves to Yahweh's gracious reign and his kingdom. They are the ones who end up beating their swords into plowshares. They are the ones who no longer lift up their swords against other nations with the idea that might makes right. They are the ones who began to implement things like just war theory. Just war theory came as a result of the Christian, the Christianization of the West. Before, in fact, there's a fascinating story from Alexander the Great, this, this uh, one described by Daniel, the, the kingdom of uh, bronze. Alexander the Great, at one point, had arrested a series of pirates. Uh, he'd taken some pirates and uh, ceased them from, from their pillaging. And one of the pirates uh, said, so you're taking us away. Why are, you, why are you arresting us? We're doing the same thing you do. He said, what do you mean? Well, when you rob and pillage and take uh, away from another ship, you're called a pirate. But when you do it to other nations, you're called an emperor. And that's the way of the world. That's the way of the world. So the kingdoms expand by means of that kind of approach. Might does not make right, though. And the Christians who began to apply these teachings, the teachings of Yahweh, were the ones that began to implement these things and to live by that, that creed. In fact, to this very day, there is a bronze statue just outside of the United Nations building in New York in which depicts... A, a man, it's a bronze statue of a man hammering his sword into a plowshare that is in fulfillment, or it is a, it's depicting this passage. So we shouldn't say it's a fulfillment because it's not to say that the United Nations is the chief expression of God's ever-expanding kingdom. That's clear. But it is to say that the kingdom of God prophesied in this passage and inaugurated by Christ has dramatically changed the course of world history and has had countless effects in the city of man down to the present day.
Now, what's particularly odd is that the idea of peace mentioned in this prophecy seems to be something that ends up being exported around the world. According to the law of Moses, though, the people of Israel were called to conquer the surrounding nations. And they were to conquer the surrounding nations by means of holy war. But here, there's something different. Here, instead of holy war, it's holy peace that is to be announced and proclaimed. It's different. In this prophecy, the nations suddenly begin to stream to Zion willingly, not out of compulsion, not at the point of a sword. Now take a look at verses 4 through 7. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord will reign over them. That is, the, the Lord will reign over the remnant. That language is clear. Those who were weak and lame, not the strong and the mighty. Those who were cast off and thrust aside will be the ones to become this new strong nation, this new kingdom that he is inaugurating. But when you think about it, this is exactly what Jesus was getting at at the very beginning, the opening of his famous sermon, the inaugural sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> the meek, he says, shall inherit the earth. Might does not make right. The Tower of Babel is not our eternal city, and neither is Rome. No, Yahweh's kingdom is the only forever kingdom. This everlasting city isn't something we build by our own strength, but it's something that God provides to us by his grace. If you look at the book of Revelation, it actually comes down out of heaven. It's not something we build by our own means. And this is precisely what Jesus had in mind when he told his disciples in Luke 12, 32, saying, Fear not, little children. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a gift. It's not something we build. A lot of people talking about kingdom building. Stop that. We don't build the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. God builds his kingdom. And sometimes he uses our feeble efforts. But it's still a gift that we are given. So all of this is just the background to the promises we find in our passage this morning from Micah chapter 5. So now I'll invite you to turn there as we begin to study the text of our Old Testament lesson and of this sermon. So in verse 1 of Micah 5, we read this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now let me stop there. Let me ask this question. As, you know, who is the judge of Israel? Who's the judge of Israel? The, the judge of Israel is being strick, strucken, stricken with a rod on his cheek. It's strange language because typically you think of God as this, God as a spirit. But here he has a cheek and he's being stricken with a rod. 
as we've seen in our survey thus far, Yahweh is the God of Jacob, and he is also the one who, according to verse four, chapter 4, will be the, the one to judge between many nations. Yahweh is the judge. And yet Yahweh, in this opening of chapter 5, is being stricken. He's being struck with a rod. Verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one to me who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Now what's fascinating is the mysterious origins of this future ruler and judge. Somehow, this one who is to be born in Bethlehem is from of old, from ancient days. In fact, according to the oldest copy, the oldest translation we have, actually not translation, it's a Hebrew copy, the oldest copy we have of this passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the origins of this king are, quote, from of old, from everlasting. That's the way it was rendered in that particular document. Now, as it happens, this was one of the primary texts. Micah 5.2 was one of the primary texts that God actually used to draw me to Jesus Christ from the context of my own Jewish upbringing. You see, in the days of my youth, even though I had regularly attended Hebrew school and worked toward my bar mitzvah, I had never been told about this idea of a coming Messiah. Contemporary Judaism is not focused on the Messiah. Sometimes you'll hear of Messianic Jews and those Vary. There are a lot of different kinds of Messianic Jews. Some believe in Jesus. Others believe in a rabbi who died a few years ago, and they think he was the Messiah. And there are others who still think the Messiah is still yet coming. But that, all those perspectives are a great minority of the larger piece of the pie of contemporary Judaism, which is non-Messianic. It's basically about being good, follow the Torah, and everything will go well. As it happens... This, sort of, this particular text was one that helped me to sort of at, begin asking questions from Micah 5.2. Because though I had never heard of this idea of a Messiah, I had seen the Christmas specials. So I knew that Bethlehem was significant. I'd heard the Christmas carols, and I'd, you know, I, I knew the significance of that ancient town for Christians. I just didn't know there was an overlap between what Christians believe and what Jews believe. So when I stumbled onto this passage in my own studies, I decided to ask a Jewish rabbi to explain it to me. And he said in a nutshell that what this verse was really saying was that it's focusing on King David, who was born in Bethlehem, and it's saying that the Messiah is going to come from David. Now, none of that is here in our passage this morning. Uh, but... In fact, King David, isn't he, doesn't, his name doesn't even appear in this verse, this, this whole chapter anywhere. Also, in an ancient Aramaic paraphrased translation of Micah 5.2, written by Jewish believers, again, ancient paraphrase, okay? So it, it's a translation from Hebrew to Aramaic. So you can see, because it's a paraphrase, you can see what they mean by it. It says this, But you, Bethlehem, shall come forth before me, the Messiah. So it's, it's including that language. It's, you can see that they're interpreting this to be the Messiah. From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth from me, the Messiah, to be executing rule over Israel. So not only does this translation identify the mysterious individual of Micah 5.2 as the Messiah, but it also presents him as a figure 
who is going to execute rule over Israel. And this is the Messiah that nobody bothered to tell me about that even existed in the first place. And B, it says he will be born in Bethlehem. Now look, take a look at verses 3 through 5 of Micah chapter 5. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has been given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand as a shepherd of his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. According to Micah, this future king born in the city of David in the latter days will be like a shepherd to his people, and he will cause his subjects to dwell secure. He will be their peace. This is why the people from all over the world end up streaming to Zion. This is why they end up beating their swords into plowshares, because he is peace incarnate. He is the one we worship and celebrate, and he becomes our new identity. Because he is their peace, they will be known as peacemakers, which is something else Jesus mentions in his first inaugural sermon as well. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, re be, shall receive peace. But now think about it for a moment. Think about the implications of verse 4 for a moment. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. Recall for a moment the language of Psalm 23. Who is the shepherd of Israel? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So if God is the shepherd of Israel, who is the one described here in Micah 5? Who is the one described here in Micah 5? Who's born in Bethlehem and who comes to shepherd his flock. Turn with me now to Ezekiel chapter 34 as we explore this idea of the shepherd theme in this amazing prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 34, very similar in some ways to this passage here from Micah. In verse 1 of chapter 34, Ezekiel says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy to them and say, even to the shepherds, Thus saith, saith the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves? Should not the shepherd feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. So now as a result of all this, God says in verse 11 of this passage, Verse 11 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel's prophecy. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Skip to verse 15. I myself will become the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them to lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong I will destroy. Yahweh 
is, just, is declaring here in this chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, that all of Israel's shepherds have failed, and that one day he himself will come to shepherd Israel's flock, God's own flock. And this fits remarkably well with what we just read from Micah's prophecy, namely that a child would be born in Bethlehem, whose origins were from old, from everlasting, and he would rise up to become the shepherd over his people. But in verse 23 and following of Ezekiel 34, things get a little complicated. As God says, quote, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So at this point, we should be asking, like, which is it? Will Yahweh shepherd his people, or will David? Furthermore, who is the David that's being referred to in this passage? Because by the time Ezekiel wrote his prophecy, King David had been dead for centuries. Well, what's actually being promised here in Ezekiel 34 is that Yahweh will indeed become shepherd of his people, while at the same time a new David is being raised up who becomes shepherd of the people. And in the person of Jesus Christ, both of these promises are, end up being fulfilled. Because he is both Lord and servant. Jesus, you see, is David's son as well as David's Lord. Jesus, actually, uh, wait, before I get to that point, let me talk about Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, which says this. I will make with them a covenant of peace, Yahweh says through, through Ezekiel. I will make them a covenant of peace and banish the wild beasts from the land so that they will dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. In this part of Ezekiel's prophecy, we find the same things mentioned that Isaiah, that Micah mentioned. The future king that was going to be born in Bethlehem would shepherd his people and he would be their peace. And in his day, the people would dwell secure. So that which was hinted at throughout the pages of the Old Testament is proclaimed with boldness and clarity in the pages of the New Testament. For example, in light of all that we've already discussed this morning, listen to the words from Jesus himself in John chapter 10. In verse 11 and following of John 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here in John 10, Jesus is claiming to be the very one promised by Micah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. He is the one. Not like the, uh, the false shepherds, the false shepherds that were criticized throughout all the ancient writings. That's the, when you read the prophets, the strongest critique comes to the false shepherds of Israel again and again in prophecy after prophecy. And same with Jesus as well. He came to say, the meek shall inherit the earth, and all those who, were, who had exalted themselves are the ones who receive his strongest rebuke. In verse 27 
of John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, so that no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, because of his work, the sheep will live in peace and security. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now these words in particular enraged the religious leaders there at the Jerusalem temple. Since we read in the next verse that some of them actually, when he, they heard this, they picked up stones to stone him. And so Jesus answered them saying, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, this would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, um, you know, to correct the false impression that he appeared to give, that, you know, if he wasn't actually God incarnate. But he does nothing of the sort. Just as he never ended up rebuking anyone who bowed down to worship him, either. That, that comes up in the book of Revelation, remember? An angel says, stop that. Don't do that. Not appropriate. I'm just an angel. Jesus never does that. So what this means is that Jesus really was David's son and David's Lord. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, the Word made flesh. Now I'll invite you now to turn to the text of our New Testament lesson, to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 2, we're told that Mary and Joseph were forced to travel to Bethlehem during the days of the census, which, of course, ended up being the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. And in verse 8 of Luke 2, we're told that in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. This is interesting because in his amazing commentary uh, on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim, who was Jewish but became a believer in the 1800s, ended up later in his life at teaching at Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two, um, teaching the Old Testament and Jewish, the, the Jewish background to the Christian faith. So Alfred Edersheim says that as he studied these things, he said, the fields there in the area of Bethlehem were not far from Jerusalem. And therefore, the sheep that grazed there had no doubt regularly been used for sacrificial purposes during many of the temple rituals. So in light of this, Edersheim says, quote, It's significant that these shepherds would be chosen to hear the angelic announcement concerning the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But strangely, this sacrificial lamb, as we've seen in the prophecies we've been looking at this morning, also happens to be the shepherd of the sheep. In verse 9 of Luke 2, we're told that, quote, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone upon them, and they were filled with great fear. It has, of course, been pointed out numerous times that fear is a natural response to almost every kind of divine or even angelic response uh, or visitation that we find in the scriptures. And this is one of the things that you might take into consideration when you see a prophet on television or someone, a friend, claiming that they have spoken with God. Typically, when you hear claims of this kind, you're unlikely to hear that, you know, anything close to this idea of fear. We could also think of the way angels have been depicted in American cinema. 
You know, was George, ba was George Bailey filled with fear when he first met Clarence in the great movie, the Christmas movie that you may see this year, It's a Wonderful Life? Was he struck with fear? No. And part of the reason is that we've all sort of collectively lost this idea of God's transcendence and his holiness. And that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we've also lost this idea of our own sinfulness. Angels, we just tend to think, are sort of like us. In fact, God himself is typically depicted as a, you know, a completely non-threatening character, you know, depicted by or portrayed by actors like George Burns or Morgan Freeman. They're never judgmental. They're sort of like a wise life coach who just kind of helps you to see your own life journey from a new perspective. He's not the judge of the living and the dead. He's your co-pilot. Brothers and sisters, that view of God isn't just out there in the world. It's very common in many of our churches. God isn't someone to be afraid of. He's more like a, a buddy. He's a warm blanket that might help you on a cold morning. Why don't you snuggle up with him today? You've heard those kind of messages. This isn't at all what we find in the pages of Holy Scripture. Instead, what we're actually told, with, told is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes you may even have heard messages from people who say, now fear, whenever you see the word fear, it doesn't mean be afraid. It means respect. No, it means to be afraid. This is why trembling is often in the same passage or context. This is why the gospel is such good news. The gospel is not God loves you and wants a relationship with you, and if you just want to, if you just submit your cares to him, everything in your life will work out okay. No, the gospel is that the gospel that we proclaim starts off with the assumption that we all stand condemned by this infinitely holy God whom all of us have offended by our sins. And yet out of sheer grace and mercy, in the fullness of time, this same God who was offended by us, the same God sent us a rescuer who would fulfill all righteousness and take our blame. He would give us his own life. He would give his life for his sheep. He himself is our peace. The one we offended. This is the good news we proclaim. And so picking up at verse 10 of this passage here from Luke 2. The angel says to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is not your typical birth announcement. This, what child is this? Is the question that people were asking then when this announcement you know, was first made. This is Christ the Lord. In Greek, that's Christos Kyrios. This is the same one referred to, to in the opening of Psalm 2 if you read the Greek version of that psalm, when it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. In the Greek version of Psalm 2, those two words, Christos and Kyrios, are, appear in that verse. 
the Lord and his anointed. Think of also Psalm 45, which says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Wait, what? What was that? God has a God? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Actually, yeah. That's what this really weird text from the Old Testament is saying. Take a look at it closely here. This is actually what Micah was saying as well. Look at what Micah says in his passage here from uh, chapter 5. The child born in Bethlehem, the one who was from of old, from everlasting, was also the one who shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. This shepherd king who is born has a God. This is all very strange, mysterious, and wonderful. But it's also something we find David talking about in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, we read this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus actually interacts with this text. He challenges the authorities of, of, this, of his day with this very passage in Matthew 22, verse 44, sorry, verse 41 and following. He asked them saying, who do you think, what, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. He said, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. See, Jesus was actually tugging at the strands we're we're considering this morning. Essentially, the promised Messiah of Israel was going to be God in human form, both Lord and servant. Just as Isaiah himself had promised when he declared that unto us a child is born, this is a human being, and his, a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There, he, he's our peace. After the shepherds received the angelic announcement, we're told in verse 15 and following that the shepherds, uh, quote, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told concerning this child. So what was the saying that they made known? What is the thing that we should make known? What should we tell others about this child of promise? Well, it's recorded for us. Back in verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christos Kyrios. Notice the shepherds weren't told this, this day in the city of David is born for you an inspirational teacher, a helpful life coach. This day in the city of David one shall be born who, who will ensure that you have your best lives now. No, this one born in Bethlehem, is the Word made flesh. 
This is the one who, though he was God, mysteriously also somehow was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This is David's son and David's Lord. This is the incarnation of Yahweh who has become the shepherd of his people. And his origins are from of old, are from ancient days. This child is the mighty God and the Prince of Peace. In fact, according to Micah, he shall be our peace. Think about that. Is there conflict in your life? Rest in his peace, even in the midst of your own confusing circumstances. He is our peace. According to Paul, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He's preaching the same gospel that Micah did. Is there anything like this anywhere out there in the world? Any other message like this? First of all, as we've seen again and again this morning, none of this is presented as a set of inspirational ideas that can just cheer us up when life gets tough. Now, the promises we read about here from Micah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, the Psalms, actually came true in the stage of world history. This gives us a solid foundation and anchor for our faith. There are many who claim to speak for God, even today. But this is the only book, the Bible. It's the only book which vindicates this claim as it points us in countless ways to the coming of Israel's promised Messiah, who came to shepherd his people and to secure their peace. Of him the nations shall inquire. That happened. That really happened in space and time. If you look around, that's why we're here today. Because, just think about it, 40 generations ago, your parents and their parents, 40 fathers up, were probably Druids. But they became Christians because of the good news that was proclaimed. The good news that had spread to the, wherever your family heritage goes to. And your family may have been Christian, or you may have been like me. You are the first believer in your family. Of him shall the nations inquire. That is good news. It's good news for the world. He shall be our peace. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, this babe, this son of Mary. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful that in your grace and mercy, you have been pleased to reveal Christ to us. And so we pray that you would grant us your spirit that we may grow more and more in our knowledge of him as he is proclaimed throughout all the scriptures. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on this generation, we pray, that many of our friends and neighbors may join us as we stream to Zion. May we be effective ambassadors to that end, Grant that we would speak of Jesus more and more in these dark days. And we ask that as we do this, you would open the hearts of all those who hear. In view of your mercies, Lord, grant us also that we may live lives worthy of your calling. And that as we leave this service, we would continue to worship you in everything we do. By giving ourselves to your service. In Jesus' name.